we are physical creatures. We live in a three-dimensional world. We're not virtual creatures. And so we are going to gravitate to and respond to things presented to us in that way probably more strongly than we would to things in you know a flat two-dimensional screen. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Today, I return to one of the themes I've been obsessed with throughout this season, the role of analog tools versus digital tools in our lives and in the creative process. Because we almost always have a phone in our pocket or a computer on the desk in front of us, we tend to default to digital as the place to start when we're embarking on a new project. But is that really the best way to nurture new ideas? I would argue that it's not. And that especially when you're in the formative stages of a new creative project, exploring your ideas in a tactile 3D way is where it's at. Whether that's sketching on paper, brainstorming on a whiteboard, or building prototypes by hand. But my guest today, the Toronto-based journalist David Sachs, thinks our connection to analog goes even deeper. And that 3D, physical, real-world interactions are only becoming more important to the human experience as the pace of technological development accelerates. David is the author of the excellent book, Revenge of the Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter, which recently came out in paperback. And in this conversation, we delve into the resurgence of analog objects, from rocketing sales of vinyl records and moleskin journals, to photographers returning to Polaroid film and musicians to reel-to-reel tape. We also take a deep dive into why working through your ideas in a real, physical way is so vital to the creative process, to building relationships, and even to making memories. It turns out that the limitations and slowness of analog has its advantages. Let's dig in. Can you start by giving listeners a high-level overview of the big trends in analog's resurgence? Well, analog's resurgence falls into two categories. Um, The revenge of analog things, and that is, you know, objects that um, were theoretically displaced and um, disrupted, uh, that were sort of made obsolete by digital technology, which have begun growing again in terms of their sales and use. And that's vinyl records, board games, paper products like uh, moleskin notebooks and other sort of paper journals, the Behance journals, for example, um, and film photography. So, uh, you know, 35 millimeter cameras, um, Polaroid film, you know, Fujifilm, Instax film, and so on. Uh, The other category is the revenge of analog ideas. And that's a much broader concept. That that sort of looks at analog as not just a object, but a way of thinking, a way of conducting business or doing things in life. And that um, uh, goes to everything from sort of brick and mortar retail uh, to um, jobs and industries like manufacturing um, uh, and even to, um, you know, the place of digital technology and, and non-digital technology in somewhere like education. 
So record sales have gone up about um, 12x since 2007. I believe the number was they've been growing about 20% year over year since 2007 through to you know 2015. Um, can you talk a little bit just about sort of the the arc of the resurgence of vinyl? Yeah, well, vinyl really hit its low point in 2006 in the United States. Um, uh, you know, that year sold less than a million newly pressed records, right? So none of this really factors in sort of used records, um, records at flea markets, records at record stores that were, you know, secondhand and so on. Um, but, you know, the, the, those aren't really tracked. So the best metric is, is sort of new record sales. Um, and in 2006 in the U.S., uh, there was something like 900,000 odd records sold, which is fewer cop fewer records than sort of cd copies that year of the high school musical 2 soundtrack um uh which you know just goes to show that low point and you know 2006 2007 when it starts growing again is an interesting time because that's kind of when digital music starts reaching its peak of convenience Right, that's the year I think either 06 or 07 that Spotify launches, um, and so you have now you know wireless streaming, kind of this all you can listen to buffet of any music you want from all over the world for a very low price, um, or essentially free if you're willing to sort of do the work or you know let alone uh, download illegally. Um, and and just as that happens, just as sort of digital music reaches its its peak of convenience of, of excellence of sort of perfection that began kind of with the Napster era. Um, you start seeing vinyl records growing again and you know, it, it, it starts off really modestly at first and it sort of gets written off as, Oh, this is a stupid craze. This can't last. And you know, it just keeps growing year after year after year and compounding on itself to the point where the industry is selling, you know, tens of, of uh, millions of records a year. Um, and there are vinyl pressing plants opening up around the world to meet the demand. And, you know, record stores are opening up in cities. Um, chains of record stores are opening up. Uh, and the industry, that part of the music industry is actually growing really for the first time since, you know, the mid 80s when the CD came out. And one of the most interesting stats you were talking about when you're talking about vinyl specifically was who was buying it and who's buying this, you know, newly pressed records specifically. And it's not, you know, these kind of old dudes, right? These kind of record heads that you see at flea markets. Yeah, it, it tends to be younger. It tends to be people in their 30s and, and 20s and even teens, um, often who are getting into vinyl for the first time. So it's not as though they dusted off their old collection, um, you know, broke out the record player and all of a sudden got back into it. If anything, sort of that generation, which is, you know, the baby boomers um, and maybe some of the Gen Xers, they, um, you know, they're, they're beyond it. They, they can't, many people who's, who've, you know, younger people who've gotten into back into vinyl, their parents can't understand it. Like, I don't understand this takes up so much space. It's, you know, why? We have the iPad. Um, there's nothing a baby boomer loves more than their iPad, I've realized. Um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it is this generational thing. And I think you find that across a lot of these resurgent analog um, goods and ideas, you know, that, that it is often the generations that are, you know, supposedly the digital natives, right? The ones who 
grew up with Nintendo computers, smartphones, the internet, Facebook, social media, so on, um, who are actually driving the growth of these analog goods. And I think that's because they, for them, digital technology isn't magic. It's just the norm, right? It's the everyday. It's, it's been around forever. It, you know, they sort of knew it and have seen it and it's no more, um, it's no more, you know, revolutionary than a microwave. Um, it's just something that's there in the house and in their lives and it, and it's always been there and it's always going to be there. Um, and, and so when they want something beyond that, when they want to, you know, create differently or discover things differently or, or just indulge almost as consumers in a different way, you know, analog goods and ideas provide a really interesting and unique um, alternative that digital goods simply don't. When how much of that appeal of analog do you think relates to taste and scarcity and sort of the difficulty of obtaining it or, you know, like records carrying it around, filing it, that type of thing. I think it's a, it's a huge part of it. I mean, far more than, you know, look, this isn't about sound fidelity, right? If you wanted the best sound fidelity, you get it through digital technology. Um, uh, and, and certainly your, your, you know, hundred dollar Crosley record player that, you know, plays records fine is not giving you uh, you know, the best sound fidelity, even compared to, you know, a Spotify on a regular setting and a pair of Apple earphones. Um, uh, it's the, the attraction to analog is about the totality of the experience, right? It is a 360 degree full body real world experience. It's not virtual reality. It's reality. <laughs> In all its, its beauty and its complexity and its cost and its difficulty. And often that's, you know, that work equals some of the reward, right? There, you know, think about a bookstore. Um, you know, bookstores have been growing, especially independent bookstores. Book sales, paper book sales are, are, are growing as well, even while ebook sales have been declining. Uh, and, and why is that? It's not that the information in an ebook is any different, it's the same words. Uh, it's, it's that there is something more than just reading the text. There is the ritual of going to a bookstore, of browsing titles, of discovering things, of talking to someone and finding stuff that you necessarily didn't even know you wanted. Um, that serendipity, that randomness, the social interactions that happen with it, flirtations with people, conversations where you learn something. Um, uh, there's sort of memory built into that and a lot of emotion. Uh, where the digital world and, and consumption in the digital world um, doesn't have any emotion. There's no emotion when you click the buy button on Amazon. It's purely transactional. But I feel like kind of jumping off of that idea, one of the biggest benefits of analog is context. Like, you know, you're reading a physical book, you understand where you are in the book, you know, you're in the middle of the book or you're in this chapter, you're about to progress to the next chapter. Um, amusingly enough, I read your book on a Kindle and when I was finished, it said I was 73% finished because the um, bibliography was so lengthy, <laughs> um, you know, but, or when you're in a physical bookstore, as you were talking about, you know, you see how they present the books, you see, you understand why certain ones are highlighted. Um, and in the digital world, you just don't get that context that really helps you have a larger understanding. Yeah. I mean, Amazon is great for finding the specific book that you want. Um, and getting it as quickly and cheaply as possible. But as a shopping portal for anything, it's terrible, right? It's it's just, 
you know, someone said to me, you know, we've had e-commerce for the better part of 20 years. And at the end of the day, it's just square pictures of things and some descriptions and reviews. I mean, it has not evolved in any way beyond what it's capable of doing. Um, And I think, you know, contrast with the emotional connection people have to shopping in bookstores, right? When people go to New York City, you know, tourists, one of the biggest tourist attractions in New York is the Strand Bookstore by Union Square, um, where you can get every single book in that place on Amazon or probably even in your Barnes and Noble near where you live or some other bookstore. But there is something about that place, the smell, the creakiness, the characters are working there, the, the visual merchandising, right? That is so much a part of the human experience um, that uh, we can't simply replicate in a digital um, shopping environment or, or the digital world. When kind of switching gears, I wanted to go to um, one of the other stories that you tell in the book and thinking again, kind of the younger generation where being digital is so sort of the norm. You talk about this camp, Walden, in the book and how it has this no screen policy. Can you talk about kind of how that emerged and, and what its impact has been on the on the kids who go there? Sure. Yeah, Walden is the, the summer camp that I went to as a child um, from, you know, nine till I was uh, 18. And uh, it's just, you know, three hours outside of Toronto. Um, typical summer camp, right? Lake, canoes, fires, sing songs, cabins that smell like pee and so on. Uh, Anyway, Walden is is certainly more remote than other camps. Um, uh, And so technology was never really an issue. I mean, they they certainly said, you know, you can't bring Game Boys, you know, no Discmans. Uh, You can can have boomboxes. That was kind of the policy as a kid. Um, uh, Plenty of boomboxes and mixtapes. So, you know, when cell phone service started coming to camp, uh, Walden about five, six years ago, you know, there, there was the, the, the camp director, Saul Birnbaum, uh, who actually studied computer science in the university, you know, he had to make a conscious choice about what to do because many camps had been faced with this, right? And camps had really divided along certain lines. Um, you know, there's statistic by the American Camping Association that, you know, a significant percentage and a growing percentage of camps were allowing uh, both staff and campers to bring phones with them to have their devices up at camp. The rationale being, hey, this is what they do, you know, in the city as sort of regular life, and and you know we don't want to separate these kids from their phones because maybe they'll stop coming into camp, right? Um, uh, Walden sort of went in the other direction. They said, look, you know, this is this is not why you come here. You come here to to be away from this stuff. You come here to have a different life than the one you have in the city. And so we are not allowing technology here. And, and you know, it is, it is a firm rule. If you're, if you're caught with a phone, that phone is taken and sent back to your parents without even so much as a note. That phone is going to show up in the doorstep of the parents and we're going to return address to Camp Walden and they're going to know exactly what had happened. And often it's because the parents have given the kids the phone. And so what was the impact of that policy um, on the kids? I think for in the book, it seems like it was largely social in many ways. You know, the the rationale behind it is, as, as what, you know, Saul Birnbaum told me, is that, look, you know, he said, what you need to build here is the concept of, you know, trust and authority, right? And character building. And the phone prevents that. And what do you mean by that? It's uh, a parent sends their kid up with a phone because they're worried about you know how they're going to do, or they're worried about them, and they want to stay in touch with them. If that kid skins their knee, if that kid gets sick, if that kid has a 
fight in the cabin with another kid who's a jerk or whatever. Um, you know, they're going to go text their mom and the mom's going to call the camp. You know, my son's not doing this, this and that. And, you know, that my, you know, what are you going to do about it? And immediately that authority, once again, is passed back to the traditional person of authority in that kid's life, who is their parents. Right. Um, uh, and so, you know, they're not able to build that character. They're relying on that crutch that they always do. Um, without the phone, without the communications, you know, their contact with that unit is limited. Uh, you know, Walden allows parents to email their children letters instead of sending it by physical mail, um, and the children to write letters that they scan and email back to the parents. But they've instituted a three-day delay on either side of it because they want to mimic how long it took for the mail to arrive. And so you have a six-day span when a kid writes a letter, it gets home, and the parent can write a letter and send it back. Um, and in that six days, the, the child is you know, forced to deal with whatever situation it is, whether it's their skin knee or the bullying or um, you know, the, the fear of sleeping in the dark. And so they need to seek out the real authority figure who is you know, this 18-year-old camp counselor that they have or the other staff that are around them or, you know, uh, their peers and, and, and themselves. And what that does is it teaches children and, and forces children to really deal with adversity, to build character, to face something difficult, whether that's, you know, an eight day canoe and camping trip through, you know, bug filled Canadian wilderness, or again, something like, um, you know, just being afraid to sleep without, uh, you know, the TV on in their room, which they might do at home. Um, that is sort of the crucial thing that allows kids to sort of grow at camp, as well as, you know, form the bonds with others that are really sort of the core of the camp experience. And the phone takes that away. Um, I think we, we sort of know that the phone is the antidote to deep social interactions, relationships, and friendships, whether it's you know, as children or in our adult lives with work colleagues, with, you know, our loved ones, um, with friends. Well, yeah. And I thought that was so interesting when you interviewed some of the children, you know, and asked them, you know, did they miss their phones? And pretty much all of them said no. And they had kind of experienced these one-to-one -one or group relationships almost in a way that they had probably never experienced in their lives because they had always had their phone. Yeah. And, and it was interesting because the youngest kids, like the eight-year-olds were like, I miss my iPad. Because to them, it was just something to play games on. But the 15-year-olds, um, who was sort of the oldest group of campers and even the staff members, you know, for them, it was, it was all the pressures of Snapchat and social interactions. Um, and so for them, it, you know, it's, this is a separate world, right? This is, they realize the value of this. And I think that goes back again to why it is younger generations um, who are driving, you know, an embrace of sort of analog uh, ideals. It's it, to the, they know digital. It's their whole life, um, but they're not awed by it. They're not wowed by it. They want something more than that. They don't want to give it up, but they want something else. You write in the book that the march of technology isn't absolute. That after this sort of first honeymoon, we start to consider what technologies are really useful and assess them on that basis. Do you think that the honeymoon with smartphones is ending? I think so. I mean, it's been, you know, 10 years since we've had the iPhone. And uh, I think the awe and wonder over it 
has given way to a realization of its real consequences in our lives for better and worse, right? And I think that's that's smart. That is a sign of sort of technological maturity, right? Uh, in the same way with televisions, the same way that we had with radio. You know, we we see what it can do and we see what it can't do. And we see what the consequences are of um, what it does extremely well, which is holding our attention. And I, and I think now... There is this realization that we need to balance it. We need to temper that in some way. Um, that it isn't the solution to all our problems. In many ways, it's the cause of, of some of our problems. It's time now for a quick word from the sponsors who make this podcast possible. But don't go anywhere because after the break, David and I get into why we learn better on paper and the massive creative benefits of working within analog constraints. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Have you been thinking about pulling the trigger on a new online identity, but you just keep putting it off? Well, here's a little story about how I tricked myself into making a new website. Step one, I plunked down the cash to buy a new domain. Step two, I had some sweet new business cards made featuring my domain name. And step three, I then had to build the website and activate the domain or I could never give out any of the new business cards that I was so excited about. Pretty crafty, right? So if you're ready to take that first step to invest in a new online identity, the place to start is Hover.com. With 400 plus domain name extensions to choose from, you're sure to find a name that matches your passion. And lately, I've been feeling particularly fond of the .me extension. Why beat around the bush, right? especially if you're looking for a domain to showcase your portfolio or your work as a talented individual proprietor. Hover also offers stellar customer support. They never try to upsell you, and they have nifty features like Hover Connect that make it dead simple to connect your domain to popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. You talked to Maria Sebregoni, who's the visionary behind Moleskine Notebooks, or the sort of re uh, relaunching of Moleskine Notebooks. Um, and she talks about her kinesthetic approach to design in the book. And how it's easier to tell a story about something physical than it is about something immaterial. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, because you think about the launch of the iPhone, Steve Jobs, you know, up on that stage walking around in his turtleneck and his, you know, dad jeans um, uh, and telling a story about this thing. Um, and we, we become so used to that tech pitch, right? It's, it's it, you know, it's, it's in, in shows like Silicon Valley, you know, I've been to many company demo days where young startups are sort of pitching their thing. Um, but it, it's very hard to do. It's, it's hard to tell a story about something that you often can't lay your hands on or touch or feel as, you know, is often the case with, with so much of this technology. It's, it's software. It's virtual. There is a story. There is a deeper story, though, that can be told not just about something like a moleskin journal, um, and the paper and the design and the history behind it, you know, which may or may not be exactly how it, how it all lines up. But, you know, each journal that you have has its own story behind it as well, right? And I think that's, that's the difference. Whereas, 
you know, you have an iPhone six, I have an iPhone six. We probably do different things and have created different things on them. But at the end of the day, there's no, there's no attachment to that. You don't get that same sense of story around it. And there's no romance to it, I think. I, yes, there are people who line up overnight for the latest phone. Um, but I, but I, you know, at the end of the day, they're very utilitarian things. Uh, you don't have that same sexiness that you have with a book or a record, which is why, you know, one gains in value whether you go out there it depreciates. Well, yeah. And even though, of course, my iPhone is incredibly valuable to me right now, it's disposable, right? Um, you know, I'll just get rid of it. Whereas I'm looking at this stack of notebooks here that I just got out that I have from, you know, from when I was 18 through to now. Well, and, and I think that's the other thing too, right? It's, you know, analog goods are the opposite of planned obsolescence. Uh, I, I have a, I bought a camera when I was doing research for the book in Austria that was made in 1971. The record player that I listened to was given to me by my friend. It's from the 1970s. I listened to it on the Pioneer Amp that my parents got as a wedding gift um, and gave to me with speakers that I bought, you know, in Bose speakers that I bought in 1993 with bar mitzvah money on a road trip through Maine uh, and records that were pressed, you know, in some cases 50 years ago. And yet it all still works, right? But, you know, if I, if I were to try to retrieve a file um, that I, you know, stored on a computer 10 years ago or 15 years ago, good luck to me. I might kind of screw up recapping this, but you it's kind of a complex argument. But in the book, you talk about how as digital technologies progress, they eventually absorb or replace certain skills that we have and even the capacity to make judgments. And that then there's this sort of analog rebound that happens as we start reskilling and re-exercising our judgment. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm really interested in this idea of sort of giving up our judgment to the gods of digital with all things that we sort of go and digitize, right, or, or transfer to some sort of digital process or digital technology, we don't really know what we've lost in terms of um, the sacrifice that we've made for a while. It takes a while to see what actually the benefit of the human process, the analog process is. Uh, and I think you sort of see that in a lot of workplaces, right? I think you're seeing that um, in companies that, you know, moved all to virtual meetings and, and telecommuting and realized that there was actually a, a value, an unseen value in, um, in having people work in an office together that was not apparent when they sort of made that switch uh, to virtualization. I think you'll start seeing a lot now with, um, you know, AI-assisted um, chatbots and, and so on. Um, because again, it's, oh, we can, we can do this cheaper and better and faster. And we're going to sort of replace people. And it's like, well, oh, now we actually realize that people are, are capable of a certain specific thing that, that we can't. And often it's something like empathy or it's something like, um, you know, just the sound of their voice, uh, or, or, you know, a different sort of, uh, thing that, that isn't as apparent on a very, you know, nuts and bolts kind of cost benefit analysis way. When thinking about the world of work, what do you think about this idea that for all of the efficiencies that digital technology and apps create, they in many ways create an equal amount of inefficiency because of these new distractions and interruptions that they introduce? Oh, God. I mean, how much time do you spend a day 
checking Facebook, checking Twitter, checking your email, uh, dealing with a Slack chat, dealing with a text message chain, um, you know, much of which could be, you know, figured out if you sat down across face to face with someone in the same space and, and talked to them for 15 minutes. And I think the thing with something like Slack, which I've never used, but I've heard is wonderful, um, uh, you know, it works really well is that it was there to, you know, solve the problem of, too many emails and text messages and other messages and other things. It was there to alleviate the inefficiency created by technology. And in doing so, it, it created in its own way a new inefficiency, right? It just gives one more thing that we have to do and, and one more thing that, you know, eats into the time that we have. It's, again, this, this realization um, that digital technology isn't just this un- ending good. We can't just sort of surrender it to the technology. You talk in the book about how we learn better on paper than on digital devices. Why is that? Um, you know, there's various studies that come out um, talking about, you know, cognitive abilities and so on. But I think, you know, we need to think of it in in the sense of our own experience, right? Um, a piece of paper allows you to do, you know, whatever you want to do within the limits of that physical space, right? You're not hampered by code formatting and so on. You take a crayon, you take a pencil, you take a pen, you can do whatever you want there. Um, and I think this lies at the heart of the appeal of something like Moleskin Journal's note, you know, the, the culture of note taking and sketch noting and so on that's come up, even for people who work in you know, Silicon Valley companies. Um, you're much more flexible in what you're able to do. Your brain is able to flow freely in terms of the creative tool, which, you know, in the best digital technology is still hampered by the limits of the software, the limits of the hardware. Um, uh, and I think, again, there's that idea of three-dimensional space, something that's that's physically there. Um, uh, we we have that built in uh, over the course of hundreds of years, thousands of years of how we've learned to, to communicate. And, and I don't think that that's something that's so easily replaced. Well, in thinking about a single sheet of paper, it comes up in the book at various different places, this idea of constraints and limitations within the analog and how powerful a driver that is for creativity. You know, you're just talking about sort of the freedom of a sheet of paper, but part of the freedom, right, is the constraint of it in a way. Yeah, you know, it's one of the reasons um, why there's been this growth in, you know, analog photography, film photography, right, which is vastly more expensive and so much more cumbersome and, you know, the products are really hard to find. Um, but, you know, for photographers, whether they're amateur or professional, you know, the limitations of film, which were once this terrible constraint that digital technology kind of undid, are now an attraction because you as a photographer know that, you know, you can't really doctor that image. You can't change it up. There's only so much you can do with it once you've taken it. But because of that, you really have to work hard within it to get the best image you can. And the picture that you're going to take, that's your picture. That's the only picture you've got. It's that one moment in time. And so you have to work with it. The other great example I love from the book is, you know, talking to audio engineers and, and people in the music business uh, about recording albums using reel-to-reel -reel tape instead of sort of digital pro tools where you can edit and pitch correct and auto-tune and all that stuff. 
and a lot of musicians from you know Jack White to Lady Gaga um, have gone back to this sort of you know old school analog recording process, not for the sound fidelity, but because it constrains them to sort of saying, okay, we're going to hit record. You know, you got three minutes, give it your best take. And if we don't like that take, we'll erase it and go back and do another one instead of, okay, we can change the drum beat here. We can do this there, right? Um, it forces them to work within the constraints of that to use whatever sounds they can make through that, um, through using things like an echo chamber, which is actually a physical room, you know, with a microphone at one end and a person sitting at the other. And, and they, you know, they get the echo bouncing off the walls of that versus just, clicking echo chamber echo on pro tools the plugin right it changes the sound it changes the product that comes out of that and i think that is one of the key attractions to analog in terms of people using it for you know productivity using it for work well, and I loved the music examples in particular and thinking about how taking that analog approach, recording on reel-to-reel, really changed the quality of the performance because, you know, it was sort of like, okay, you have one take and it really changed the level of energy that they were putting out and the level of focus that they had when there wasn't the opportunity to do 93 different takes. Exactly. Or they can do, they have to do 93 different takes. Um, in order to get one right, but they can't just splice them all together or they can't do three takes and then just have someone go and fix it. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's something to that, right? It speaks to that capturing something in the moment and then working with what you have. Um, sometimes you get these wonderful things that you have to kind of work into it that aren't perfect in the way that digital products might be perfect, but their imperfection is actually a, a different kind of perfection, a unique kind of perfection. It's the perfection of, you know, a a handmade piece of furniture versus one that's kind of spit out from IKEA. It's the perfection of um, a meal that you cook at home and has all these different things around it. You could only really have that one meal once versus, you know, a McDonald's hamburger or, you know, a, a Swanson frozen TV dinner. I wanted to go back to one point that you made around education, which I thought was really interesting. Um, in terms of analog, you describe how having lots of whiteboard space in a classroom helps students retain information because of something called information persistence. Can you describe what that is? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think to summarize it, it's, you know, if something's up on a wall and you see it every day or for every day for a month, you're going to remember it a lot more than it flashes in front of your eyes for, you know, 15, 20 seconds and then goes on to the next slide. Um, uh, and that's why when you go into a school classroom, you know, most school classrooms are not these kind of sterile Apple store environments. They are, um, they are riots of posters and colors and things that are there because every time that kid's bored looking around or whatever, it's, they see that and it goes back into their brain and it reinforces that message, whether it's the ABCs or the periodic table or, um, or some lesson about, you know, design thinking or something that, that the teacher has up there, um, that makes an impression and makes a continual impression. And I think that's why, you know, billboards are still a big thing, right? Everyone's like, oh, these, you know, these are going the way of the dodo. Um, you know, everything's going to be, you know, online advertising, you know, billboards are billboards thing because it's that driving around the city, you know, seeing 
that message coming back to you, usually for some Casper mattress or some digital company's service. <laughs> well, and I, you know, think I love thinking about that idea and kind of feeding it back into the workplace or thinking about it in terms of creativity. I did an interview the other day for a different episode um, with a designer who was, you know, talking about this huge blackboard that he has in his workspace and how important it is to him for ideation and thinking about this idea of information persistence and how powerful it is, um, particularly when you're maybe brainstorming or ideating to kind of have those ideas literally written up on a wall and kind of constantly um, in the back of your mind is quite powerful. And I think there's something very different from seeing something physically than, than having it on a screen, even regardless of how big your screen is, which is why those sort of sticky note programs never really took off in the way that, you know, post-it notes have continued to grow. Um, you know, you're, you can easily manipulate, but just seeing things in a three-dimensional space changes it. You know, when I wrote this book, I didn't type it on a typewriter. I wrote it in on, you know, Microsoft Word. Um, but every time I finished a draft of the book, I would print it out, you know, 300 something pages. And then I would go through it with, you know, a red pencil and, or pen or whatever. And even though I had gone through that draft a couple times, you know, in the program, once it was on the page, all of a sudden I saw things differently. I read it in a different way. It was almost like the sum of its parts versus just the different individual sentences and words there. Um, and, and I think that is, again, speaks to the fact that we are physical creatures. We live in a three-dimensional world. We're not virtual creatures. And so we are going to gravitate to and respond to things presented to us in that way, um, probably more strongly than we would to things in, you know, a flat two-dimensional screen. Yeah. Well, and you also have, you know, the heft and the sort of stack of paper that also gives you a feeling of progress and sort of activates this sense of accomplishment in a way that scrolling through a Word document, you know, most certainly does not, I think. Exactly. Yeah. As an author, there is no sweeter feeling than when you receive that box in the mail from the publisher of the first printed books, right? You, you know, the chances of this thing becoming a bestseller, you know, infinitesimally small, odds are you're going to lose money on this thing, probably wasn't worth it, you know, from a cost-benefit analysis for all the years of work you put into it. But goddamn, that moment when you hold that thing in your hand, you, you know, you've, you've produced something. You've actually made something uh, in a world where fewer and fewer of us are doing that. You interviewed uh, a UX designer at Google, John Skidgel, and I really liked one of the things that he said. He was talking about the power of drawing by hand, and he was saying that drawing is, is quick and that sketches suggest something, but they're not dictating something. And this idea that when you do something on a computer, when you use software, it immediately looks real rather than provisional. And so you can get caught up in the details in a way that's really distracting. Right. Yeah. There, there's, there is an inbuilt preciousness to it. Um, uh, and I think, you know, the idea of, you know, that it's just paper and you can crumple it up and throw away and scribble on it, you know, that liberates you and liberates the imagination, um, in many ways from, I guess, the sort of pressure and a fear, uh, that, you know, it's not right. It's not perfect. Um, and, you know, you can't tweak it. You can't tweak a design once you've written it on a napkin. Um, but, you know, you do it on a, on a 
you know, a, a design program and then you can go and change the shade and change the thing and futz around and do all the things that you shouldn't necessarily be doing that early in the process. And I feel like the creative process, certainly at least in the early stages, just works so much better in analog on paper, you know, on whiteboards, using your hands, sketching. Do you think that's because it doesn't have this sort of preciousness? That's what's so magical about analog in terms of the creative process? I think so. And I think, um, again, it, it is that, um, you know, the constraints that it puts on you, right? Um, uh, because often in the creative process, you know, you might be designing things that are going back out into the physical world. And so you need to sort of start there. Uh, and then of course, bring it into the digital, uh, realm to manipulate and change it and save it and share it and do all the things that, you know, computers allow us to do. Um, but I think there is a fundamental benefit that the best designers out there, you know, realize in, um, in bringing creations to life through, you know, analog memes and tools. Do you personally think that you're more productive on a computer or on paper? It depends on what I'm doing. I, when it comes to sort of brainstorming ideas and, and thinking about things and working through an idea, uh, paper is great and, and paper is the best. I do all my interviews in person on just pen and paper. Um, and I find that uh, that's not because I take the most accurate notes. I have terrible handwriting. I probably miss a lot of stuff. But the nature of the conversation changes if you put a recorder in front of someone's face or, you know, God forbid, you sit there typing on a laptop in front of them. Um, uh, you feel like you're, you know, like going through customs. But when it comes to writing, I mean, I, I took a typing class in high school and I, you know, I can type 70 something words a minute. So I could just crank through things on the computer and I'm very efficient, very good at it. If I turn off my internet, if I block all the social media programs, if I turn my phone off and all these distractions that keep flying in. You quote Virginia Heffernan, um, a piece she wrote for the New York Times, um, where she says that one of the side effects of digital technology and digital interactions is a low level heartbreak, uh, a persistent sense of loss. What do you think she meant by that? Well, um, you know, I, I, I selectively quoted Virginia and then read her great book last year, Magic and Loss, which talks about the other side of it, sort of the, the conflicting emotions we have towards digital culture and the internet, um, both the wonderful things that it does and creates and moments of joy that it brings us, but also this sense of lacking something, right, which comes from the nature of it, the nature that it's all this simulation. And I think... You know, I think I could sort of sum it up best by something I told, was telling a friend recently, um, which is that, you know, I have no memories, no good positive memories of interactions on social media. Like, you get this instant sense of gratification, but you go back for more because it leaves you lacking. You get nothing long out of it. I have no lasting memories of Facebook posts I made or Twitter, you know, interactions I have. Um, they just fly away. But I have memories of conversations I've had with people. I have memories of things I've done with friends, places I've gone, meals I've had. Um, and those are the memories that are going to stick with me through my life. Uh, I, I, I feel nothing, you know, lost with that. Whereas any digital interaction, any sort of 
thing that happens in that world is ephemeral. It, it's, it's of the moment, but it doesn't get me anywhere deeper. As you think about how you spend your time, it's useful to bear in mind what we're left with after a digital experience. And the answer is not very much. It may have been diverting or entertaining, but whatever conversation unfolds on social media or elsewhere in the digital sphere almost never sticks. We just don't reminisce about digital experiences the way we do about analog interactions. That conversation you had with your friend via text yesterday is probably already slipping away. But you can still remember vividly the hike that you two took seven years ago and what you talked about and how it changed you. The memories that we go back to, the ones that stick, always happen in 3D. Maybe it's because emotions are analog, or maybe it's because we're human animals with five senses that want to be fully engaged. I don't really know. But what I do know is that I haven't felt a single twinge of loss since I deleted the Twitter app from my phone. Next week on the show, I'll be interviewing one of the all-time greats of graphic design, Paula Scher. Our conversation centers around the idea of taking creative risks. We'll talk about why you should apply for jobs that you feel unqualified for, how to avoid getting too comfortable in your area of expertise, and why we constantly have to teach ourselves to see again. Aside from being incredibly talented and wise, Paula is also extremely funny, and she has been producing great work for a long, long time. If you're interested in building a sustainable creative career, you'll definitely want to tune in next Tuesday. And if you'd like to get a reminder when new episodes come out, you can sign up for my personal newsletter, which comes out once a week and is packed with great links and, of course, deep thoughts on the podcast website at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. There's an amazing um, South Park episode where um, Stan gets on Facebook and somehow gets uh, like, you know, 7 million followers for some reason. And then he has to, he tries to delete his account, but he can't because his profile is so much stronger than him. And then there's like this user versus profile thing that happens. And he goes, he gets sucked inside the profile and it's kind of like the movie Tron. It was right around the time that that. Or Lawnmower Man. (laughs) Yeah. Does anyone remember Lawnmower Man? I do. I do remember Lawnmower Man. This show was produced by Matt Susich, and our theme music was composed by Devin Craig Johnson. If you dug this episode, I would love it if you left us a review on our iTunes page. Every rating really does help us build our audience, and by extension, it helps us keep making the show. Thanks again for listening, and remember to take your time. <laughs>